Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please join me by turning to the book of Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're studying verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. And this morning's message is titled, Unity Through Humility. Humility is attractive. Pride is not. Here's an example. In 2009, among the three players inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame was none other than Michael Jordan himself. As is customary at these events, the inductees are asked to give short speeches. And to no one's surprise, people were talking about MJ's speech for the rest of the night, but not for the reasons that you might suspect. Though widely regarded as the, great, as the greatest basketball player of all time, MJ's speech revealed that while one's athletic ability and accomplishments may leave mark on marble, it can miss the mark of what matters most, character. Instead of following instructions to keep the talk brief, MJ ironically delivered a 23-minute and 23-second speech. I have no idea how he pulled that off. That's super weird. But his speech was filled with insults and self-congratulatory comments. At one point, MJ addressed his children and said, You guys represent a heavy burden. I would not want to be you if I had to. He apologized to them because they had to live in his great shadow. Now, though most of the night of the sold-out audience that night, came to watch Jordan, someone else stole the show. Moments before MJ took the stage, another Hall of Famer gave his speech. And unlike Jordan's long speech, David Robinson's seven minutes were filled with giving thanks from beginning to end. David Robinson gave genuine thanks to the Lord and expressed how helpless he would be without God's help. He intentionally thanked each of his three children, each of his three boys, saying that they were his best friends. And he lavished thanks upon his wife, thanks upon thanks upon his, uh, on his wife, who he said had been his rock throughout his entire career. Friends, true greatness was on display that night. As the power of the gospel shined forth from a man humbled by the gospel. And true greatness is on display in this morning's text. As Paul spotlights the mind of God as seen in the humility of the Son. Though David Robinson is a great example of humility, Paul takes us back 2,000 years to see one who was even greater. And by showing us the humility of Christ, he wants to teach us that for the world to see the power of the gospel, the Christian must show them the humility of the cross. For the world to see 
the power of the gospel, the Christian must show them the humility of the cross. Through this text, we gain a small insight into the context, into into the issues that this church was experiencing. The presence of pride had been detected, and Paul knew. Paul knew that if it was not quickly quenched, it would burn down all that had been built in the last decade in this local church. And it would hinder what still needed to be done with the gospel going out into the city of Philippi. For that's what pride does. It destroys The church in Philippi was surrounded by the lost, surrounded by people who did not know Christ. But unchecked pride was threatening to damage the church's witness. So Paul provides for them this antidote. For the world to see the power of the gospel, the Christian must show them the humility of the cross. All that had been done is not all that needed to be done. The church still needed to mature in Christ's likeness, and it still needed to see the lost saved. And that's the case for us as well, isn't it, Living Hope? We've had an incredible run for the last three and a half years. It's been an amazing run. As I look out into the church this morning, it's been an amazing run. But all that has been done is not all that needs to be done. Our church still needs to mature. We still need to grow in Christ's likeness. You know what else? We need to see people come to know Christ. Just like the church in Philippi, we are surrounded by thousands of people who do not know Christ. Much work is left to be done. And if we want to make a difference in our day? If our church wants to make a difference in our day for Christ, it will not be through the pride of man, but it will be through the humility of the cross. Friends, if we want to see souls saved, it won't be through a divided church, but through a united one in Christ. So now, if you would, please join me for turning your attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, and that is the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer and ask for his help to understand his word. Lord, this morning we just simply acknowledge that though the flesh is willing, it is incapable of understanding your word, hearing your word, applying your word, be changed by your word. And so Lord, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Christ's name. Amen. Our first point this morning is gathering around common ground. Gathering around common ground, verses 1 to 4. Now, friends, I love how Paul starts this section out. His appeal at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, was let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul does not want this church to be divided by their differences, but he wants them to to be united by their commonalities in the gospel. Friends, a united church is a powerful witness to the culture. Now, what are those commonalities that these Christians shared or that these Christians are called to remember? Well, Paul provides us with four shared experiences in the gospel in this first verse. He says, first, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, Friends, because we are in Christ, all that we know is encouraging. After all, in Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. We have been justified, which means declared righteous by God. In Christ, we are called children of God. We are adopted into his family. In Christ, we have received the promise of eternal life, the promise of of a resurrected body, that after this life, things are not done for the Christian, but things get better, infinitely better. And in Christ... We have received the Spirit, as Carrie read for us from Romans 8 this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. Second, any comfort from love. Well, what Paul has in mind here is the experience of ease and consolation the Christian conscience encounters 
when we recall that we are not anticipating God's wrath, but we are living in his love. That brings an an incredible amount, or it should bring an incredible amount of ease to the Christian's conscience, of comfort, consolation to the Christian's conscience, that we are not awaiting judgment, but that we're living in his love. God doesn't just deal with us. He loves us. Third, Paul says, any participation in the Spirit. Paul's pointing out once again to the Holy Spirit, who has a profound ministry in the Christian's life. He says in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Any anticipation or participation in the Spirit. And then fourthly, any affection and sympathy. His his point here is to draw attention to the moments, to the many moments, no doubt, when a fellow believer ministers to you and cares for you, brings you a meal, wraps their arm around you in your moment of loss, in your moment of sadness, who is there to cheer you on in your moments of excitement. Any affection and sympathy. Paul's appeal to the church in this first verse is for the church to look at what they share in common in Christ. To look at what they share in common in Christ. And as he has just proven, we share so much in common. The list is endless, really. First, that first verse, we could spend the whole morning unpacking that first verse. We share so much in common as Christians. Paul wants this church to avoid staring down their differences. And instead, he wants them to identify the common ground that they share with one another in Christ. Why? Well, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, why does he include that their one mind would result in his joy? Well, the reason is quite compelling. Though Paul's ultimate joy was, was rooted in knowing God through Christ He no doubt experienced levels of spiritual high and spiritual low based on how his friends in the faith were doing. This draws attention not to an unstable man, but to Paul's pastoral heart. Parents often talk like this as well, don't we? When we're speaking about our children and their relationship with the Lord, Our hearts can either be burdened or they can be blessed. 
That's Paul's heart here. Though he didn't have biological children, the churches he planted were his spiritual children, and he cared deeply for them. And what he wanted from this church is crystal clear. He wanted this church's unity through humility. So he calls for this church to be of the same mind. To be of the same mind. Now does this mean for a church to be united that it must agree on everything? Must a church have the same political persuasions, share the same hobbies, have the same educational convictions to be of the same mind. In calling for unity, Paul's not calling for uniformity. In calling for unity, Paul is not calling for uniformity. He's calling for the same mindset. Uniformity is the world's way of getting at unity. And it messes everything up. But Christians are not ultimately united by their values, but by their Savior. Paul wants this church to have the same mindset. What is the mindset that Paul wants them to have? It is the mindset that he had, as we've already seen in chapter 1. And what was that? To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's Paul's mindset. If you peel back his, his, his head and look at his brain, this is what you see. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's Paul's mindset. That's the mindset that he wants this church to have. And that's the mindset that God wants our church to have. Now, in drawing applications to our own day, we can't be certain... What was threatening to divide this church? But we can take principles learned from this passage and apply them to our current situation and our context. In our day, faithful Christians often disagree over important matters like homeschooling versus private, private schooling, whether moms should have careers or stay at home to raise the children, global warming and the Christian response, or big government Versus little government. But living hope. Our continued fellowship must not be contingent on our conclusions here. Our continued fellowship must not be contingent on our conclusions here. Our continued fellowship must be contingent upon the cross of Christ. Our culture doesn't need another cowboy church or another homeschool church or another social justice church. Our culture needs to see people who come to different opinions but who are united around one thing, and that is the cross of Christ. So Paul says here, have this same mindset. Namely, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And with this mindset, he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Paul's emphasis in verse 3 is not simply to think of others as more important, but to show that others are more important than yourself. It's a mindset that should show the fruit of selflessness. But what does it mean to count others more significant than yourself? Well, this is a further explanation of the resolved mindset he calls the Christian to have. It is the predetermined and premeditated decision to reckon others as more important than yourself. My friend Mickey says, this kind of humility doesn't assess others and make judgments on their worthiness to be served. That's the human default mode. This kind of humility takes the lowest position, that of a servant. Friends, while Paul's application in this context is for the church and for life, And community in the church, our community as a local church, I think that the best training grounds in learning to live humbly is actually in the context of our homes. Friends, if we can learn to live selflessly inside the home, we will be a bright light for Christ everywhere we go. After all, a powerful corporate witness is only possible by the execution of individual convictions. Can you, can you imagine what our homes would be like if we modeled this servant-hearted posture each day and woke up with the resolved mindset to serve our spouse regardless of whether we felt they were worthy of it? I can tell you what our homes would be like. They would be a picture of the gospel. It'd be a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. Every day we wake up unworthy of Christ. But we wake up with fresh mercy. We wake up with fresh awareness that he loves us and that he loves us and he loves us and he loves us and he doesn't count our sins against us. But he reminds us, you're justified. I've declared you righteous. Sacrificing my son in your place on the cross. And I love you. And I'm going to, I'm going to be with you today. The picture, if our marriages were like that, it would be a screaming picture of the gospel. So Paul says in verse 4, live like this. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. At least to our second point this morning. His mind over my matter. Verses 5 through 11. The well-known phrase, mind over matter, means the use of willpower to overcome physical problems. The use of willpower to overcome physical problems. 
That is not what Paul is calling for in this text. He's not calling Christians to have a higher intensity of willpower, but, have, but to have a deeper dependency on Christ's power. Paul wants us to, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, our best weapon in waging war against pride is when we model our lives after the humble mind of Christ. In this text, God is allowing us to see into the deepest workings of his mind. He wants us to have front row seats to see just how unselfish he is. So Paul says in verse 6, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <laughs> what? A profound sentence. Listen again. Speaking of your Lord, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. My following exposition of this text will fail at capturing the glories of what, what we are reading, what we are seeing that God has done for us in Christ, of what Jesus has done for us in the incarnation. But I'll do my best. Paul is highlighting in this text the eternality of Jesus' existence. So Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago to a virgin named Mary. Paul shedding light that this was not Jesus' origin. Paul says prior to the manger, he was in the form of God. Now what does that mean? What does that mean to be in the form of God? What are you saying, Paul? Does it mean that Jesus' pre-existence had some obscure semblance to the nature and the character of God? No, not at all. It means, as one commentator puts it, he was characterized by what was essential to being God. He was characterized by what was essential to being God. The NIV, the NIV translates it like, translates like this. He was in very nature God. And that captures Paul's point. Our one true living God has eternally existed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as our sovereign grace statement of faith says, each person is fully God, sharing the same deity 
attributes and essential nature, yet there is but one God. Each person is distinct, yet God is not, by this distinction, divided into three parts, natures or God. God is one in essence, three in persons. Now, why in the world is Paul teaching doctrine following his instructions for the church to pursue humility? Why is he going to doctrine? Have this mind among yourselves. Don't be selfish. Think of others more highly than yourself. Straight to doctrine. Why is he doing this? Well, because Paul wants us to have Christ's mind. And by knowing about Christ's nature, it sheds light on his humility. He wants us to see into the mind of God. We are called to be imitators of God. As dearly beloved children, we're called to follow his example. And so Paul is peeling back so that we can see the mind of God on this matter of of selflessness and humility. Though he was in the form of God, Paul goes on to say, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. What a breath of fresh air, right? Unlike many of the egotistical leaders of Paul's day and our own day, Jesus did not use his position of power as an opportunity for selfish ambition. What a breath of fresh air. There is one genuine person in the universe, and it's not me. It is not our political leaders. It's God. It's Him. It's our Trinitarian Lord. As one writer says, equality with God means not grasping, but giving away. How well said. So if not then for selfishness, what did Jesus do? Paul goes on to say he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The eternally existent, second person of the Trinity, who was in blissful and joyful fellowship with both the Father and the Spirit, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, does this mean that Jesus gave up his deity in the incarnation? Did he stop being God? Is that what Paul's saying? Absolutely not. Look at the language. It says it right here. He emptied by taking. That gives us all the insight we need to see into what happened in the incarnation. He emptied by taking. The eternal Son of God took on the humility of flesh. 
Paul does not want us to miss the point. By taking the form of a servant. By taking the form of a servant. Friends, just pause for a moment and remember we are peeking into the very mind of God in these verses. And I want to ask you a question. In the glossary of God's mind, did you ever expect to see the word servant? If you were scrolling through the glossary of God's mind, you would expect to see king. You would expect to see Lord. You would expect to see creator. You would expect to see sustainer. But would you ever expect to come across the word servant? No, I would not ever, 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 ever expect to come across the word servant. Well, there it is. Right, right there in God's word. God's eternal plan to save us from our sins included his taking the form of a servant. Do you recognize that language from the Old Testament? Paul was an Old Testament guy. This is language taken straight out of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. The one who was to come. And what did that servant do? How humble. How low Was he willing to go to save us from our sins? It already already required that the Son of God would take on flesh and to be found in the form of a servant. Our question should be, what else could it possibly require to accomplish my salvation? Isn't this enough humility for the eternal God To empty himself, to take on the form of a servant, shouldn't that be enough? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the humility of Jesus was on display every millisecond of his life. He trusted the will of God all the way to the cross. And friends, just to remind you, death on a cross was a humiliating death. It was it is was and is one of the the most humiliating forms of capital punishment in the history of the world. Yet Jesus, who has eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself to this lowly point. Why? Why would he do this? He did this in order to save us from our sins. 
He did this in order to save you and I from our sin, which would have eternally separated us from his presence. He loved us so much that he willingly went to the cross for our salvation. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin, I want to invite you to do that right now. We come to God not through a man, not through a building, not through our giving, not through our sacrifices. We come to God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is by faith that we come to God. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it would only be right, and it is right, to call you to do that now. For you, right now, to place your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. To buy faith right where you're sitting to approach, to approach God and confess your sin, acknowledge your sin, that you've sinned against him and you deserve his judgment, you deserve his wrath, but that you recognize for the very first time in your life that he's made the way for you. And that is by sending and sacrificing his son on the cross because he loves you. And for the first time in your life, you're seeing that he loves you, that he really loves you, that he doesn't just begrudgingly welcome you as if it was his job required description of his job, but know that he really loves you. And that he sacrificed his son on the cross for you. And he's done everything necessary for you to know forgiveness of sins. Well, Paul doesn't stop here. In verse 9, he goes on to tell us, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, do you see what Paul is doing here? He's showing us a couple of things. First is that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That Jesus did not stay in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead three days later. And now he is seated at the right hand of God. And though his name was lowly on earth, it is highly exalted in heaven. For now and forever. And secondly, Paul's showing us. That if we humble ourselves before God and his will, he will never forget us. He'll never lose sight of us. Though verses 9 through 11 are exclusively reserved for Christ, they show us something about God. 
Namely, that he exalts the lowly and he brings low the proud. So friends, Paul's point to us this morning is crystal clear. For the world to see the power of the gospel, the Christian must show them the humility of the cross. A few years before David Robinson's Hall of Fame speech, his coach was on national television and said that Robinson's character was out of this world. How fitting is that comment? Friends, that's what Paul is saying to us as well. Our example of humility is out of this world. Our example is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, I don't even know what to say, but thank you. You've just given us the grace, the undeserved grace to look into your mind. We don't deserve to see your mind. We don't deserve to know your thoughts. We don't deserve to know that you love us. We don't deserve that, but thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For these verses, for, for this text. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place for our sins, Lord. God, please give us the grace to be a church that is united through humility. Be a church that's centered around the cross of Christ. Be a church that's constantly transformed into the image of Christ and sanctified into the image of Christ. We ask you for this grace, Lord, and we love you so much. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.